Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season two of the Colorado Energy Leaders podcast. It has been a really long time since I've posted, so I apologize. I guess since we're all trapped indoors, it's a pretty good time to restart, though. Uh, but actually, the reason I was offline for so long was for about a year, I was sorting out some of the uh, impacts that the podcast was having on my personal life. But I've got those sorted now. And the nice thing is, uh, going into season two of the Colorado Energy Leaders podcast, I'm a bit more free to share some of my opinions on clean energy. And I'm a bit more free to interview a diverse group of people around their views and their work in the clean energy space. So I want to welcome you all to the second season of the Colorado Energy Leaders podcast. And so today, for the start of the second season is someone who's actually been really supportive of the podcast from the beginning. His name is Mike Kruger. He's the CEO of the Colorado Solar and Storage Association. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jordan. It's a real pleasure. I've been a longtime listener and uh, excited to have a conversation today about what's going on in clean energy in Colorado. You have been so cool throughout basically a year or more of support of the podcast. We've tried to record these episodes before, so I'm just really glad you're welcome, you're willing to come back and, and finally get an episode out with you to highlight uh, COSA's work in the state, because I think it's really important. Well, thank you. So firstly, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? And how did you get to COSA? Uh, it's a fine question. Uh, my uh, wife will probably tell you that the, it's been a long and windy road, but there's part of my uh, professional history makes me think this is where I was always meant to be. Um, so uh, I moved out here from uh, DC about 18 months ago to take the job as the president uh, and, and, and uh, CEO of, at that time it was COSIA, a 30, celebrating its 30th year as a trade association for solar across Colorado. Uh, upon taking the job, my board informed me that we would also be representing and advocating for storage and therefore would need to change our name. And so uh, in February of 2019, we jumped from COSIA to COSA. So some of your listeners may know us in our in our previous name. Uh, we are still continuing that important solar advocacy work, but we've also uh, taken on the advocacy for, for storage. Um, before that, I was in D.C. Uh, for 12 years. I had worked uh, for the previous administration for six years in the U.S. Department of Commerce for the Secretaries of Commerce. I worked for uh, three secretaries during my, my six years there. Uh, two year, for the two years prior, I was on Capitol Hill working at the Education Labor Committee. Um, and then in kind of what feels like now a previous life, I taught middle school um, history primarily, but also IT geography, uh, one semester of math, which was a disaster for everybody involved, um, both, <laughs> both, both nationally uh, and internationally. Um, and uh, while I'm not an army brat or anything, uh, my dad did climb the corporate ladder. So I had the, the luxury and, and the pleasure of living uh, in Nebraska and St. Louis and Boston, uh, outside of Seattle. And then my own professional travels took me to Italy and uh, London before I ended up in DC. And then ultimately here, I will say that I think I have, uh, after 40 plus years of being a um, tumbleweed, I have found home. I was out camping with the family in May of last year, woke up early, uh, to fog on the on the lake and snow in the mountains and sun in my face and thought this is the place I think I will spend the rest of my life so uh, if if the solar and storage industry uh, will keep me I'll probably probably finish up uh, finish up my uh, professional life here in, in Colorado well you wouldn't be on the Colorado energy leaders podcast if your true alliance didn't align <laughs> with Colorado so glad you found the place no <laughs> as am I uh, 
We are glad to have you here in Colorado. Um, so firstly, I do think it is funny how energy policy and working with energy generation technologies is kind of like a black hole. You had like a little winding path, but then you found energy and you are just, you're sucked in now. It, it's your life. It's where you're at. A hundred percent to the point of being very boring at uh, dinner parties when, when they used to exist. And, um, and uh, I think about energy. I mean, I will tell you that I will listen to this podcast and, and many other energy podcasts while riding my bike. So even when I'm on my own personal kind of workout time, I'm also trying to get up to speed on energy. I am fascinated by it because for 30 some years of my life, I never thought twice about where the electricity uh, comes from that, you know, when I flip the light on. Um, but now I understand what, how the electric power sector is so incredibly complicated and tricky and seminal to civilization. So, and then of course you laid on top of that, how our old ways of, of procure, generating and procuring energy were contributing to a, a rapidly declining uh, quality of life because of climate change, you know, throw all that in the mix. I can't think of uh, anything else I'd rather be focused on right now. Energy policy really ruins you for dinner parties. Like <laughs> I used to be able to talk about pop culture and sports, but now it's like, have you heard about border adjusted carbon taxes? <laughs> Let's talk about them. <laughs> I'm here for it. I will talk about them, but that's why I have a podcast because this gets it out. I'm, so I'm with you. I, uh, I talk <laughs> about the drama of the public utility commission and the difference between megawatts and megawatt hours. Uh, yes. To the point where people just leave me. They don't even like, they just ghost me in the middle of the conversation. Uh, well, and I don't blame them. No hope for us. Yeah, I don't blame them. Um, so let's talk a little bit more, though, before we dive into kind of some of the challenging questions that I wanted to ask you about this um, with COSA. So one of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast now is you actually recently published an article on Utility Dive um, about things that states could do to forward clean energy in the middle of this catastrophe, the, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, yeah. What does COSA do? Is it, is it mostly kind of a publication type thing that it talks with, you know, governments and stakeholders? Is it a trade organization? Is it uh, does it support some sort of fundamental research? What is what is COSA? That's an excellent question, uh, Jordan. Uh, there is kind of a misunderstanding, I think, a little bit about what we do. We are the trade association for installers and developers of solar and storage projects from across Colorado. So uh, primarily, uh, most of the folks are, are headquartered here, although certainly we have members for who their headquarters are elsewhere, but they've got large projects uh, here in the state. Um, so we advocate on behalf of them. So that's, uh, you know, my membership is 130 plus. Um, advocating for those folks at both the Public Utility Commission, uh, which is currently where all the action is because of the, they've continued to do their work even under the COVID restrictions, and I applaud them for doing that, and also at the legislature, uh, which will be starting up. I think the plan is here to start up in a couple of weeks um, to resume their, their session. That's, uh, that's primarily what we do uh, on behalf of our membership is ensure that there are public policies, legislation, uh, rules, and whatnot that will ensure that solar and storage can be uh, deployed widely across the state. So we've, you know, certainly are excited to see Colorado's uh, large carbon reduction goals for which solar and storage are a key technology piece to that, um, all the way through to some of the minutia about, you know, how much solar can a resident put on their roof and still get uh, full retail credit for what they generate. Um, all of that is is our policy decisions and are decided um, 
by these regulatory bodies and legislative bodies. And we go before them representing the over 7,000 employees that directly work in solar and storage in Colorado and say, hey, if you want more of this, this is the rules you need to make. These are the laws you need to make. Um, in addition to that, we certainly we pull our members together for, for conferences and trainings. Um, we will often, certainly now at this time, uh, with COVID impacts, we are working much more closely with with local jurisdictions, trying to understand what what if any health restrictions there were they they want to put in place regarding solar installations. But also, one of the bigger things we figured out is the uh, permitting and inspections, which are handled by local jurisdictions. You know, when a local uh, jurisdiction closes their office to the public. Uh, how do you get them an application for for a new permit, for example? And so we've worked with uh, multiple jurisdictions, counties primarily, but also some uh, small small cities, around moving uh, their permitting and inspections to a digital um, platform. You know, so uh, as simple as emailing a permit, uh, preferably having an actual. Uh, some sort of online process to do it, but even doing that is able to uh, keep solar being installed even during these tougher uh, COVID restriction times. Um, so that, you know, we sort of adapt, we've had to adapt to the, the changing climate like everybody else, but primarily that's what we do. People will sometimes call us and ask for quotes uh, for a solar system for their house. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, uh, I love all of my members equally. So I just say, hey, we have a directory. Uh, you want to get yourself at least three quotes, uh, and best of luck to you. We, we you know, we, I don't install solar, um, and it is very confusing because my both my children tell their teacher that that's what I do, and then I have to kind of explain <laughs> that's not actually what I do. Uh, but it's good enough for for elementary school kids at this point. That is lovely that your kids uh, talk about what you do in a very cute but erroneous fashion that is that is great yeah and we'll check that off the box you, you don't install cosa does not install correct uh my next question was actually going to be kind of what is your focus during the coronavirus situation um where we all kind of have to readjust what is work and life and whatnot and so you answered that pretty well i just think it's really interesting because all of the things i always wonder after we get done with this this pandemic how will things be different and i just imagine that like if there is any silver lining many of the things that were barriers paperwork and stuff i hope we will have fixed them so that we can come back even stronger across the economy to fix these issues so that's really interesting to hear some of the the things that you are doing especially when we're trying to minimize physical contact with other people yeah it certainly has been a challenge uh, we do hope that you know some of these jurisdictions can you know adopt more efficient processes that it will lower their workload as well as as speed up uh, the time to to install systems uh, for for homeowners or the, even the large systems. I mean, I, I want to applaud. There's a couple of, of uh, county councils that that have done online Zoom. Uh, meetings around permitting for some of my, my members who are doing much larger projects, you know, and, and that's, that's tricky because you're asking uh, folks to, to join this zoom meeting um, who may potentially be impacted by this solar installation, whether it's going to be a 25 acre or a 250 acre one and, and try to moderate that and try to handle that in a way that's a, a new format for everybody. So there's, you know, been, been Logan County and Boulder County, both have, have, Try to do that, and I think there's a, these. These are some of the changes that we may say become more permanent. On the solar side itself, I think my guys have been challenged to do a lot more of the online marketing and a lot more of the um, 
kind of digital uh, lead generation um, that was was pretty common, but now is the really the only way to generate new leads. Um, so I think you'll see a continuation of that. And I generally what I understand is it's a pretty efficient way to get to to, to raise awareness about solar and, and then to get those lead generation. So I think. Those will be changes we will see. Uh, none of them are worth the cost we've paid, but like you mentioned, Absolutely not. There's, no. there's a silver lining that uh, we, you know, we may be able to pull out of this uh, this massive disruption. Yeah, and I do, I do want to emphasize, like this is it is a catastrophe what is happening, and I'm not suggesting anything is worth what is struggling with. Probably just in my little depressed space. I'm like, is anything going to come of this? And I, I do hope we, we emerge at least uh, something has, innovation has occurred in some areas to make things go smoother. So we will see. We shall see. All right. So as is the, the formula for this podcast, um, I always like to have kind of a couple questions that are directed to you to kind of challenge the work that you're doing and ask, uh, what are some of the areas where Maybe it sounds good, but we need to dive deeper to understand whether or not it's a true benefit. So the first one I wanted to kind of talk about or discuss is what is the purpose of trade organizations like COSA? And I think where I want to like critique or think of through is one of the things that I think people don't understand around the, around the way state and local governments work or even the federal government is it seems like different organizations have different access to lawmakers. And so, for example, like I think a lot about how do we get funding to farmers and people in agriculture to build solar installations. And I like have some ideas, but because I'm not part of a firm or a trade organization or anything like that, no matter how good my idea is, it will probably never make it to a state level or a federal level policy. Right? It's not going to show up on a senator's desk anytime soon. And I feel like sometimes there is like a question in American politics around why do these trade organizations seem to have special access? And it seems to be that they have, you know, levels of funding or ability to get donors or, or something. So I guess, what is the role that trade organizations play in informing our government around their policies that make them valuable? So I think, you know, you're asking a tough question. I appreciate that. There is a question of, do you hate the game or do you, um, you know, hate the players? And my argument here would be that everybody has the right to associations in the First Amendment and trade associations do just that. They allow folks within the same, in this case, the, the same trade to combine their voices, to be louder than just a single person screaming into the wind. And, and what I do, and I think what all trade associations do is allow business owners who are um, focused on, on the blocking and tackling of their business. They're, they're focused on their, uh, meeting their customers' needs. They are allowed, um, the trade association allows me to carry their message in a way that doesn't require additional time and effort from them. Now, they certainly my members will speak to members of the state house or the state uh, senate, members of the polis uh, administration when necessary, but primarily they can offload this policy need, policy change, this new potentially piece of legislation to me to, to handle full time while they go about uh, meeting the needs of their customer and running their business. So, you know, I mean, is there is there an unequal power differential? Uh, potentially, because we have a lot of money involved in politics. You know, Colorado is actually really good about keeping that influence of money out. 
but uh, it does cost money to run for office. It does cost money to to uh, get elected. And so, you know, there are, um, you know, there are those who give money. Giving money does um, then, you know, put you in the same space as the as the senator or the representative, and and you get a chance to get their ear. Uh, you know, the folks I work with here in Colorado, it's very different than what I was working in D.C. And part of the reason that um, D.C. no longer held the appeal for me that it did when I first moved there was the inability to really properly get in a room and, and share your message with your with your member of Congress or your senator. Um, you know, if you wanted to attend a fundraiser, it was a 250 or $500, you know, buy-in. Um, you know, and so that just wasn't – that immediately sets up a barrier to most Americans, right? That's a boatload of money to spend for – you know, a, a cocktail basically, um, and a few moments with the representative in Colorado, uh, because we have a citizen legislature, it's, it's, you know, the, and we have really strict limits on, on donations. You know, I've found that it is a lot easier to get representatives and senators attention simply by, um, contacting their office and, and, and setting up a meeting there, there isn't a, unlike DC, there isn't this expectation that you also call their campaign at the same time and offer to be helpful. Um, in fact, many of our best and uh, strongest clean energy advocates for a long time were advocating uh, on behalf of, of solar uh, and storage because they thought it was the right thing to do, not because somebody was throwing, you know, throwing lots of money at them. So I, I wanted to, to preface this conversation with, the, with you kind of describing how you view your role. I believe that we expect a lot of our uh, legislators you know, we expect them to be experts in every field that they legislate and somehow are like a little bit disappointed when they're not. And I think that's like unrealistic. And so I think that trade organizations like COSA perform a very valuable role in translating that information. You know, I, I do think your organization is valuable in, in what it does. So I do thank you for your work. I just wanted to kind of start with that fundamental question. No, I mean, I, I appreciate that. And it is an important oversight question. We want to be uh, you know, democracy is messy and we want to make sure we've got everybody, um, everyone is e deserve an equal voice. So we should always be pushing to make sure that happens. So one of the reasons that we wanted to specifically talk today is outside of your work kind of in the state, you have recently published an article in Utility Dive that was basically a plan for state legislatures to take up to forward clean energy in their states, especially at the time of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that was very frustrating for me, because we had such a wind at our back here in Colorado, we have clear policy projections that will, um, you know, add gigawatts and gigawatts of renewable energy uh, across the next decade. And over the last, uh, well, up until about the 1st of March, uh, the previous 18 months or so, we'd been creating a new job every day uh, for, for that wow. time. So you know, I mean, and week, including weekends, right? So um, there, we were just an expanding in, uh, industry. We, I heard over and over and over and over again from my members that they couldn't uh, find the right folks for the jobs they had open, uh, especially some of the higher skilled jobs, whether that was, um, you know, a, a higher a, a master electrician or folks like uh, one of my companies was looking for a CFO um, and had a hard time finding uh, someone who had the right combination of experience. So, you know, we, we, we were we couldn't hire folks fast enough, quite honestly. And then COVID happened. And of course, many of the uh, projects came to a halt or have been deferred until later in the year when we have a better understanding of what the, what the true impacts will be. And, and so we've moved from hiring, uh, you know, creating a new job every day to uh, furloughs and layoffs, which, which hurts. So 
you know, my membership obviously looks to me to solve some short-term problems, which things like the permitting we talked about earlier, but also longer-term issues around, you know, what are we going to do on the backside of this? You know, what is, how do we get back to that expanding business uh, we had? And so with, uh, with the help of, of members of my association and my board, we put this uh, kind of plan together, broadly looking at, you know, what could, what could state legislators um, do when they came back? And, and some have adjourned for the year, some are on recess, some only meet every other year. But the, the assumption being that when they come back together, there will be a need to put folks to work. So that was really the impetus for this. And then we looked at what are the ways in which the state could do that and cost them no money. Um, as if you're following the most recent debate um, here on the on the most recent bailout bill that the, the Senate passed and I believe is waiting for the president's signature, the big debate was over how much money were states going to get to help backfill their lost revenue from sales tax or potentially from income tax. And so we knew that the states would not have any money. So the thing that this op-ed really was focused around was what are the policy changes that the states could make that would cost the te- their state no uh, would cost them no money, but would still provide a market that would spring forward and and bring forward additional clean energy, and the jobs that go along with it. So that was really the the, the kind of the structure. And then of course we jumped into to, to multiple different facets. I think they need to all be taken together to really have maximum punch. But you know one a state could pick only two or three of the items and still have quite a bang for their buck. Um, to get you know jobs, uh, you know almost immediately in, in most every state, demand for solar um, and renewables ex- exceeds the uh, the available workforce. So, you know you you really only have to open this up a little bit, and you immediately have a market and a demand from customers. So I want to dig in in just a second to a particular claim you made about it. I- these programs either being low cost or no cost. But firstly, what were the programs you recommended? I mean, broadly, we talked about, um, and we and it's a place where states do a lot of work, is job training and placement. So ensuring that um, one of the things we learned from the uh, Recovery Act back in 2009, 2010, was job training alone doesn't help. You actually need to have placement. Um, you need to make sure that your folk, that your upskilling folks for jobs that are there. And so a state, you know, can do, they usually have an economic development or, uh, office. They often have an office related to energy. Those can work with trade associations such as myself and other established uh, entities to ensure that the pipeline is very clear. And so rather than saying, oh, I think everybody should become a, a skilled electrician, um, the goal here would be that the states would, would direct those offices to go out to industry and say, what are the jobs you need? And then backwards, Look towards the towards the job play, job uh, training, um, and that's really an important thing um, to do. You know, at a time where people are filing massive unemployment claims, it, one could envision a state um, re- creating a job board, for example, that's that's related to and somehow which you know to get your your unemployment um, check, you would you could you'd have to check in on the job board. There, these are low cost, um, easy ways to potentially match. Uh, those who are currently seeking a job with with the jobs that you know that we have and expect to have going forward, you know we did a lot on focus a lot on rooftop solar for businesses. Um, you know we've had uh, a disruption here because of this this epidemic, but the kind of the general concept of of resilience is going to come back, I think, a lot over the next twelve to eighteen months. And energy resilience is one of them. And so obviously um, having solar generation close to the where it's needed what's called close to load within the industry of course um, is is vitally important so 
you know, protecting the right for a, a, a homeowner to uh, be able to export their e extra energy back to the grid for, you know, get compensated for, for at the retail rate is huge. Authorizing the ability of CPACE and RPACE, which are programs that allow you to use the equity in your, either your, your business or your home to help pay for the, the um, asset, you know, is another important way to do it. And then, you know, discouraging local jurisdictions uh, from, or sorry, encouraging local jurisdictions to, to streamline their permitting um, could be huge. Uh, because it really, you know, over-the-counter permits lower costs uh, significantly and increase deployment times, or sorry, decrease deployment times um, in, in a very tangible way for the customer, which is great. And finally, if, if the state can, it could require the state facilities to be powered by clean energy. Um, it doesn't come with a direct cost to taxpayers, but, you know, one could envision a uh, – a school or a university or potentially a state-owned hospital to go out and seek out bids for clean energy, which, you know, could give them rate security for the next 25 or 30 years um, if they were to sign, you know, sign an agreement. So there's, there's some ways that, that they could do that there. We talked about community solar, you know, across the country, community solar isn't even enabled or isn't even legal in, in most of the states. Um, so, Many of the states, the first step would be just to create this program, but the ability for up to 40% of um, rooftops in America are not suitable really for solar. So that's a lot of Americans for whom having on-site solar is probably not, not going to happen, but then they also get robbed of that opportunity to secure the, the clean energy and the long-term uh, bill stability that they're looking for. Um, so we think that you know enabling community solar, or if you have a community solar program already, uh, potentially some some ways to to tighten that up are um, like for example a, a strong bill credit to make sure that a customer knows what to expect uh, in the in the value of the solar they create that's important and I think that creates a bunch of jobs both construction as well as marketing and sales as well as finance and legal there's just a lot of um, a lot of various jobs in there it's not always an electrician job here in, in solar there are a lot of other jobs. Um, we talked about energy storage. There's a lot up in the air about energy storage right now. And we, you know, we have everything from uh, unclear how you interconnect it or what, how you treat it because storage is a heck of an asset. It can do a whole lot of things, um, but it also means that it's very tricky as you go through the actual interconnection process. Um, we don't necessarily have state level policies that are directing the commissions that set the rates towards creating solar or sorry, storage friendly rates. Um, and, you know, and then states could also direct the commissions to say when the utility is doing their, their grid planning, they must also include, you know, a, a decision point of whether maybe a storage would make more sense. It's often called non-wires alternatives or NWAs. But, you know, having a mandate there that the utility consider uh, energy storage in lieu of an upgrade to a transmission or distribution line, you know, is another way to potentially get that out. And then we talked a lot about large scale a lot of states don't even have renewable energy standards yet. So start there. Very simple. Require a certain percentage of the grid to be clean uh, from renewable energy. And then there's a lot of talk and uh, around siting of these projects. New York, um, you know, for good or for bad, uh, has decided to centralize siting decisions. And the governor there is, is taking many of the decisions away, uh, the siting um, 
issues from the local to the to the state level. I, I'm not sure we're totally there as in uh, you know in Colorado. That's that would be a, a big jump, but at least streamlining that so that your for example your timelines are similar or your environmental studies are the same and you're not requiring uh, a 35 day timeline here and a 75 day timeline there or a, a specific environmental study here. Uh, but the state needs something slightly different. So you actually have to commission two studies. Even as simple as that can really lower the cost and bring uh, bring a project online sooner. So that generally kind of lays out our, our overall argument. There's obviously individual nuances. Each state has its own individual issues. But broadly, if all 50 states were to take up those items and enact them and incentiv um, you know, incentivize them via policy, I think you would see a, a massive explosion of clean energy, specifically solar and batteries here, added to the grid across the country and, and jobs being created at a rapid, rapid pace. Thank you for that summary. Um, personally, it sounds like it was a lot in there, but I will make sure to include the article in the show notes for people who want to go read because I read it and I thought it was a very good article. That's why I wanted to highlight it on this podcast. So firstly, I want to point out or at least suggest I've had the opportunity to talk with several energy leaders and they talk a lot about these kind of low cost or no cost programs. And I think the hard part I have is hearing that is that at some point along the chain, there is a cost, right? There is um, particularly like we'll get into a little bit with community solar. If community solar is taking land from another aspect and hopefully we find better ways to co-locate it with things. But if it's taking land, that's driving up maybe the price of land in that region. Or if you have, say, a requirement that your public utility commission take a, into account the social cost of carbon of their buildings, that doesn't cost the state anything, but it will artificially elevate the price somewhere in the chain that somebody has to pay. And so I think it's, I really focus on these are low cost, maybe not necessarily free, though they, they can be free at the point of implementation. But I just kind of think about- I mean, I, I, let me push back a little bit on that. I think um, there's- a, well, A, first of all, nothing has no cost, right? I mean, I guess that's to be, there's always at least a, at a bare minimum opportunity cost. So for example, your land use, um, there's obviously an opportunity cost, but I certainly know that I have members who have taken un, what would be kind of unproductive agricultural land and turned it into a, a, a either a large scale installation or a community solar garden that has generated more revenue for the uh, for the landowner than than the land that was previous. So, and they were able to do that still at a, at a lower cost than say other alternatives for creating energy uh, via say coal or or even uh, natural gas. So, I think there's that you know. Likewise, with social cost of carbon, yes, it does that increase the cost, but all you're doing is internalizing an external cost there. There is a cost for carbon. We all know it. We're all facing it. Um, you know, here in Colorado, we're, with the exception of maybe some drought issues and, and some forest fires, we're much more insulated to it than, say, the coastal communities who are um, feeling this even worse. But but there's still an external or a cost there that, that needs to be internalized. Um and, and the way we're saying it here is we're saying is no cost to taxpayers. So we're not asking for taxpayer dollars. Um, there could be, you know, obviously some ratepayer impacts or whatnot. But given the ever increasing, uh, or sorry, ever decreasing cost of, of solar and energy storage, we're still doing this cheaper than uh, other alternatives that are out there, other other fossil generation or thermal generations that are out there. Um, so to be clear, I mean, I guess I would I would say yes, there is always some sort of cost, but here we are talking about dollars and cents. And, and what I've put forward um, costs uh, the, the, the taxpayer in the state no dollars and cents. Yeah, and thank you. I think you explained them using 
vernacular that is much more appropriate, opportunity cost and taxpayer dollars. Now that you're labeling the money, I'm much more kind of on the page with it. I just, I just sometimes kind of try to think through where everything goes and um, just like to be clear about, you know, what, what some of the choices that we're making. And I don't know if there's any choice in energy today that has all benefits and no drawbacks. So I kind of want to dive into a little bit of community solar. So firstly, what is community solar? Uh, Colorado treats community solar as the analogous to your rooftop solar, but for individuals for whom rooftop solar is not uh, a viable option. This could be anything from a renter um, uh, to a uh, homeowner for whom their their house just doesn't have uh, really a lot of south or west facing uh, uh, surfaces, um, or uh, or it could be uh, a trying to think it's like somebody with a small footprint so think of a maybe a manufacturer who has a lot of a lot of high electricity load but a relatively small footprint so what it would go on the roof would not equal um, or offset their electricity load the ability to build an off-site uh, community solar garden allows individuals to subscribe to the output of those panels and get a credit on their bill accordingly the way we, we address it here in Colorado is you get the um, aggregate retail rate for your customer class. So if you're a commercial entity, it's for the commercial class. If you're a residential, it's for the residential class, uh, minus the delivery fee. So you don't get the full, full benefit that uh, maybe a, a rooftop uh, solar installation would give you uh, because you are having to pay to, to transport those electrons from where the, where the garden exists um, to, to kind of where you are. Um, it's, it's broadly done. It's not an individual person by person or subscriber by subscriber, but, but the commission sets those rates. And then that is the, uh, what we call the bill credit, the credit you get on your bill that subtracts from your total overall, uh, bill to the utility. So firstly, while you were talking about community solar, I could hear your kids a little bit. And I'm so happy to know that they are as excited as oh. I am about community solar. So <laughs> I actually, I'm sorry. I think that like seeing people's kids and pets during calls and whatnot, for like work and what is like a lovely portion of this work remote thing. But yeah, I forgot 4.30 is when my son's homework is due and he usually turns his, you know, turns his homework in and comes down and screws around in the playroom. So, all right. I love community solar and I'm really appreciative that you brought up community solar in your article. And there's a couple of different reasons I wanted to point out and then ask you about the barriers that you suggest states can take to um, reduce the, the cost of entry for community solar. So firstly, I am a millennial who rents, I'm single, and that basically means that purchasing solar energy has been off limits to me in a lot of places. And Colorado is one of the leaders in community solar, just to put some numbers to it. I believe we have over, according to the Colorado Energy Office website, we have over 70 community solar projects in the state, totaling uh, 50 megawatts of capacity. And I think community solar is just a very important step in the clean energy transition. Additionally, um, I don't know where this rule is, but one of the rules that was proposed last year was basically rezoning. So as I understood it, and maybe you have more information than I do on this, there was a limit to the distance that you could uh, buy into community solar. And they basically just changed that limit. So in the county surrounding Denver, where people would like to build solar, but for lots of reasons, people live in apartments, they can't put solar on their roof. And they basically just changed the zoning of several counties around them to make it legal for community solar to exist. And that's an example, I think, of a low cost, 
mechanism that states can employ where it basically costs, like you said, taxpayers nothing to just change zoning laws. And there are you know, knock-on effects and now higher competition for land, et cetera. But it's just a really cool way to quickly and uh, robustly expand the opportunity for solar. Additionally, this is something that I think has been criticized a lot in California. Things like EV tax credits go to people who can afford a new car. And, you know, if you own your own house and you can afford to put down the money if you live in a place where on-bill financing isn't an option, um, solar panels on, on residential roofs are actually less efficient than larger solar installations. And community solar kind of removes that barrier. You can, the amount of money you spend, I think, I think the number is about a half to a third of the cost of rooftop solar per kilowatt hour generated um, because you get, you know, roofs that are slanted to maximize aesthetics, not solar power production. And at Community Solar, you have the opposite. They're usually located in, uh, I think, 50 to 150 kilowatt arrays kind of outside of urban zones and people can buy in and through virtual net metering, have them applied to their bill. And so I think Community Solar is a really unique thing that um, expands, is, is a little bit better, I think, than some of the net metering and rooftop solar programs that kind of started the, the use of ho homeowners use of solar to mitigate their electricity bills. Um, maybe you agree with that or maybe disagree, but I, I wanna ask kind of in, in conjunction with that, um, what are some of the things that Colorado could do to better enable community solar? Uh, yeah, there, there's some real advantages to being one of the, the first movers on community solar. And then of course there's some disadvantages because you, um, you know, you try your first things and you got to come back. I do want to just quick go back and mention that um, it isn't zoning that was changed. So last year in the community solar modernization act, we didn't change zoning. Zoning is still handled by the local jurisdiction. What this, what the prohibition originally was, was you had to install your solar garden in a County or an adjacent County to where your subscribers were. And, um, and that has been, that adjacency has been removed and now it's just anywhere within the service territory of the investor owned utilities. So, uh, and the reason going back to cost is that, um, you know, as we try to balance out this desire by customers for solar, but also try to go at the lower cost, uh, the land in and around Denver, you know, in the, in the kind of the five or seven counties we've got around here that, that have most of the load, most of the land there was either cost prohibitive to put a solar farm on, or many folks had had plans uh, for that land over the next 20 years, primarily residential housing or, uh, or um, you know, kind of strip malls and these kind of things that support those. Um, and so they didn't want to sign a long-term lease for 20 years. And so we were running into a problem uh, where the land was either unavailable or too expensive. And so by removing that adjacent county requirement, just saying anywhere within Excel's territory, um, we've now opened up a whole bunch more uh, less expensive land and it helps keep the cost down, which as you mentioned is, is vitally important uh, for uh, subscribers of all socioeconomic levels to join and to make that as open and, and available as possible. Um, right now in, in Colorado, we are in the midst of a rulemaking around uh, solar um, community solar gardens. And so, you know, one of the things that we're looking to try to do in that is to, expand the capacity. Um, we currently have way more interest from customers than we do capacity. You did mention 50 megawatts. I think we're about to celebrate uh, coming up on 100 megawatts of installed capacity or operating capacity here very soon. Um, and up to 200 megawatts has been allocated uh, for addition, you know, uh, for, for, for development. So we're, we're moving along, but even that, um, 
you know, we see uh, hundreds of megawatts of demand every year from customers. And, 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 you know, last year and the previous two years, we only had about 40 megawatts available. Um, the current the 2020 and 2021, we're hoping to see 75 megawatts available. Um, but we're pushing for even more because we, we know that there are municipalities, large customers uh, and residents um, all throughout Excel's territory that would like to um, add solar uh, to their energy mix, but don't don't necessarily want to uh, or can't add solar to their rooftop. So that's one of the big things. The other is our bill credit is um, it floats every year and it goes up or down based upon the retail rate and then some of the costs of transmission and distribution. And that just makes it a little bit tougher for a customer to understand, you know, what their bill savings are and what they will be. So we're looking to try to figure out a way in which you can uh, ensure that you you know, you sign up for a number uh, towards your bill, you know, credit towards your bill, and you're able to get that for the life of your contract. Um, you know, those are going to be the two biggest things here in Colorado to really make this uh, program, you know, go. Uh, we've, I think, been lapped by Minnesota, New York, Illinois, uh, potentially Virginia, which just just signed some massive legislation out there. So, you know, we were a first mover in the, in the country. Um, we made you know, the best effort we could, but we've since been leapfrogged by several other states that are, um, that have learned from us and then have implemented better decisions. And I think, you know, we are hoping in the next, in this rulemaking and then potentially uh, if necessary uh, in the next legislation, legislative session to, to kind of catch up with them and, and then, you know, maybe we can even leapfrog them uh, because like I mentioned, demand greatly outstrips supply here in Colorado. I mean, being leapfrogged by Minnesota is just something I cannot stand. So. <laughs> and they're Minnesota nice about it, too. That's what makes it even worse. Uh, it's so, so smug. So smug. No, Minnesotans are great. Um, and thank you for providing updated numbers. I did try to look them up, and they are, in some cases, a little bit hard to find, I think, because they are separated a little bit by jurisdiction. But that was just what I found on the Colorado Energy Office website recently. And so I really appreciate that you can shed that, like, good new light and exciting development in community solar. Yeah, no problem. That's sort of what they, my members uh, kind of pay me to do is to keep on track of that stuff. So, and I will admit it's, you have to dig <laughs> through PUC filings to get those numbers. So I don't blame you. Uh, this Colorado energy office is a wonderful resource and, and you can't go wrong looking there, but there are more updated numbers than, than that. So. Thank you. And thank you for uh, that article and kind of all the things that were in it. I kind of have one question that I want to, round out this discussion and, and end the podcast on, but it, it kind of comes with a little bit of backstory about something I've been very frustrated in the time of the coronavirus pandemic related to energy. So I went to high school between the years of 2003 to 2007. And those are the years that we were dealing with in the United States, a lot of issues surrounding armed conflict in the Middle East. And one of the things that really frustrated me is um, seeing how everyday Americans had strong opinions about the Middle East, mostly because they could see it in their gas prices. And during the coronavirus pandemic, I have been just immeasurably frustrated with us almost getting back to that exact same place. So I am not someone who subscribes that we should pass a law that says there should be 100% renewable energy. I love the idea of clean energy. I love the ideas of rules about getting us to decarbonization as quickly as possible. But I'm not particularly interested in picking a single technology. I, I, I don't begrudge anyone who is interested in 100% renewable energy, but I focus on kind of the broader portfolio of clean energy options. However, 
when I go into rooms where people are advocating for 100% renewable energy, I get really frustrated by the people attacking them. Usually their attack goes something to the effect of, well, if we went with 100% renewable energy, it's too expensive. It's too costly. It would cost too much to the ratepayers. And I want to take this argument on good faith. But then they come around and say something to the effect of, well, you know, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Yes, but on the other hand, we don't have to base our solar panel price based upon what is happening in the Middle East or what is happening between Russia and Saudi Arabia. During this pandemic, we've seen two countries, Russia and Saudi Arabia, engage in a price war around oil as the price of oil has dropped to actually negative. So for people who don't know, in Texas yesterday or last week, because it, all of the places to store oil were filling up and because you can't just dump oil, prices of oil literally went negative. And the first thing some politicians wanted to do was get on the phone with Saudi Arabia and cut production to prop up prices. And to me, that is incredibly in bad faith when their, when their attack on renewables was, well, it's going to be too expensive. If, if high energy prices are bad, then low oil prices are good. So why are we fighting that? And I guess I'm just frustrated that we're back to where it seems like we were when I was in high school surrounding oil. So my question for you and kind of why I'm going on this rant about oil is, if I were in charge of US energy policy and oil prices dropped, the first thing I would do is call up Elon Musk and say, I will pay for all of the workers I can to go from the oil industry to solar panels or to Teslas or to batteries. I would try to transmute as much of the workforce as I could to clean energy places. So in another decade, we don't have to be here again, where our entire financial market is based around the collapse of oil prices. So particularly for states that may not be as interested in clean energy goals, but have a specific interest in shoring up their economies. Why do you think now, during a pandemic, when people have 10,000 things to do and everyone is busy, every state legislator I've talked to is overwhelmed and working overtime to try and combat this, why is now a good time to tackle clean energy? Uh, so, yeah, Jordan, I mean, I, I, I feel your frustration um, as someone who is uh, apparently, by doing the math, about 15 years older than you. Um, I, uh, I too, you know, when I was in high school, we were talking about Middle Eastern oil, but it was the first Iraq war, not the second one. Um, and, and so have seen this, this game play itself out multiple times. You know, the reason we should attack clean energy right now is, is twofold. One is it creates jobs right here, you know, in Colorado, in the United States, right? And we are in a place where because of, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia and Russia, and then the dr drop off in demand because of COVID, but even before that, it, the price was falling, where these foreign powers were deciding whether folks, you know, up in Weld County or in other parts here in Colorado, were going to have a job or not, right? I mean, based upon that, that interplay. Clean energy doesn't do that. The, the market for electricity is hyper-local. Um, it, it is very much controlled. You were allowed to control it by our own policy decisions and by our own market conditions. So that's, you know, I think that's number one. Number two is there is legitimate uh, changes happening to our environment through climate change, which are manifesting themselves in, you know, these, these much stronger weather patterns and, and much more, you know, changes in, in the weather. Um, and so we, I think I saw a story the other day that the Southwest is in a mega drought, uh, according to geologists and those who, who study this, that it has not seen this sort of drought 
uh, level of drought in, in tens of thousands of years. And, and that's all brought on because we're throwing tons of carbons, hundreds and millions of tons of carbon into the air every, every day. Um, and that carbon has an impact on the hydrology and then ultimately the rest of the country or the rest of the world. So I think we have a chance now where we can create jobs. So people who are out of a job, the millions and millions of people in America, unfortunately, they're out of a job right now. Some of them could find a new job and ultimately a new career in clean energy that also at the same time has the benefits of helping to arrest the impact of, of, of carbon uh, generation and, and carbon usage and the climate change that that causes. So I think it's a, it's a twofer. It's also never been cheaper. We have this year and next for the ITC for solar, the investment tax credit for solar. So right now, if you install solar, you get a 26% tax credit. Next year, it'll be 22. Uh, unfortunately, in 2022, it falls way off a cliff to either zero for residential or 10 for large scale. Um, but the uh, but but you know it's never been cheaper, and now is the time to invest. If we wait, the impacts both financially and then and then on the climate are uh, you know we miss that opportunity. They're you know they're going to be much higher. So I, I think it, it it seems to me to be a no brainer. Obviously, I run in this space, and maybe even self serving to say it's a no brainer. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody uh, who th who wouldn't uh, find the merits in those arguments. Um, and it doesn't mean we have to do it in lieu of other things. I think. You know, we've spent $2.2 trillion. It sounds like, you know, there, there may be even more money spent. So we can invest in clean energy and help the restaurant industry. We can invest in clean energy and help the, the airlines and the travel industry. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think it, we have to have it uh, one or the other. I think it seems like there's plenty of political will and, and potentially money to, to support all of this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I guess, I'm sorry, that was like 30% therapy me framing the question that way. But it is just, um, and I, again, I want to emphasize, I think there are so many ways you could do this in a way that protects the workers in the oil industries and redirects their labor to clean energy jobs that, you know, put a barrier between this happening again. It just, I, I see people acting kind of down their traditional lanes and I really liked your article because it, it, it focused on things that even during a pandemic people could do that not a heavy lift for legislators and could potentially help the situation just tremendously. And so I was really appreciative of that. And I'm just probably venting at this point. But thank you so much again for your article. Uh, it was a real pleasure. I'm hoping that folks, uh, you know, energy leaders who are listening to this will take it under advisement. I'd be happy to chat with them about what we you know, Colorado specific solutions uh, that we, you know, we have thoughts on and, and work with all the stakeholders to figure out how do we move, move this forward. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're not in Colorado, by all means, you can still reach out. I'd love to talk with you about what you can do in your state. Uh, but I'll probably also direct you to local state experts who uh, like the, ch like the chapters, like uh, we are, that would know, you know, the, the, the exact solutions that, that uh, you might be searching for. That is an excellent transition to the end of this podcast. So where can people find you, Mike? <laughs> uh, they can find me at uh, cosa.co. That's C-O-S-S-A dot C-O. Uh, I suppose I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, although on Twitter I'm mostly uh, uh, talking about baseball or national politics uh, with the occasional energy thing thrown in there. So, um, And then folks are welcome to drop me a line at any time. It's just mkruger, M-K-R-U-G-E-R, at cosa.co. Happy to take a virtual meeting with you or once we're allowed to meet in person to grab a coffee and talk about energy anytime. Thank you so much, Mike, for your time.
And thank you all so much for tuning in to the Colorado Energy Leaders podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Colorado Roo, at Colorado R-U-X. You can get this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Please feel free to reach out with any comments or thoughts and share this podcast with your friends. Thank you all so much and have a good uh, day and stay safe out there. Thanks, Jordan.